Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we discuss our customers' and clients' top concerns, including the latest Bank of England rate rise, navigating unsettled investment markets, and rising inflation. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, Miles Sherry, Wealth Manager, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Welcome to today's Word on the Street podcast. This week, we are seeing volatile markets following the Federal Reserve's decision to raise interest rates by 75 basis points, something not seen for a long, long while. And we're recording this Thursday lunchtime and hot off the press, the Bank of England has raised interest rates by 25 basis points to 1.25%. So we've got unsettled markets, a pretty rare macroeconomic environment. So we thought it would be a good chance to go through some of the top client questions we're getting at the moment to try and help investors navigate around this period. So I'm really pleased to be joined by Miles Sherry, who we've had on the podcast many times before. But Miles, you've recently changed roles and are now a wealth manager, so spend all of your time helping our wealth clients. So we thought it'd be great to hear what those what's on those clients' minds at the moment. But before we get to those questions, I'm going to have to go to you, Will, because I'd love to start asking your view on the markets, which continue to be very unsettled. What's at the heart of this continuing unease? Oh, God, that's a big question on quite a hot day. Yes. So, Sarah, I think it is uh, sort of we're in the process of correcting and of a a sort of an extrapolative error from many investors. I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, Error may be too strong a word, but basically the longer, you know, a certain trend goes on and I'm thinking about, you know, trends in inflation, certain big mega macroeconomic trends, the longer a trend goes on, it's, it's detractors lose credibility one after the other. If you think about it, you know, a good example is that trend towards disinflation that's been in place for much of the last several sort of decades. Some argue even longer than that. Ever lower inflation, ever lower real interest rates. And anyone sort of arguing the potential for the opposite has long since, you know, quietened down. Now, alongside several kind of extraordinary shocks, you know, the last few years, all sorts of you know, healthcare, macroeconomic and all sorts, war uh, and beyond, you know, maybe that's provided some cover for a shift that might have been already in motion. You know, some we've argued on this podcast before, although we've sort of relayed other people's Uh, arguments about how you are in a demographic shift already and actually the forces towards disinflation that you know drove much of the last few decades you know the accession of china to the global economy the accession of eastern european workers as well you know those forces are are spent in a way and now you've got much more in a way of long-term inflationary forces to battle with but anyway the result of all of that sort of you know long-term trend towards disinflation declining belief was that actually you see that sort of start to be uh, assumed in models, assumed in expectations. And uh, you, you know, what you're seeing now is a sort of shock to that. It's a change in the way people are thinking about the future a little bit, I think. Uh, and now, you know, like JP and the team very wisely kind of foresaw, you know, back in 2021, when we did that great big, you know, strategic asset allocation refresh, there are now kind of more futures ahead with a bit more inflation in them than there were prior to 2020. And that's worth investing for. And that's kind of what you're seeing. I think in part, I think that's what you're seeing is the market catching up with that. Uh, Ongoing inflation surprises and 
uh, a much more sort of combative central bank community than many people will remember. You know, you had the biggest interest rate rise in the US uh, this week since 1994. Uh, you know, so it's kind of, you know, these are big things for the market to absorb and particularly because it's a correction to that prior extrapolative error, like I say, from, from investors. You need to plan for not just the future, as, as JP and uh, Rob and always are always telling us, you need to just not just plan for the future um, that goes, extends as a straight line from the past. You need to plan for multiple futures ahead and a shift into them can be quite unexpected, as we're finding. Okay, well, thank you. Miles, I want to bring you in now. What are, the cli- what are your clients most concerned about at the moment? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. Good to be back. Will, if that was a tricky one, I'm afraid the questions on my list today probably aren't going to get any easier. <laughs> Luckily for me, I'm again on the easy side of the table. But look, why don't we start uh, perhaps high level before getting into anything too nitty gritty? Because as you've said in a few recent episodes and just now there as well, including monthly market insights with Phil, a great listen. By the way, the, the macro backdrop is in truth pretty complicated Mm. this is naturally of course something many clients will agree with and some with lower composure they may get nervy and maybe consider selling others with excess cash may want to hold off investing but when thinking about the long term because as we know that's the most important what is there in say the data coming across your desk that could provide maybe some reassurance for for investors? Well, Miles, you know I'm an optimist, so so I don't find this too hard in many ways. I mean, even in the darkest times, I sort of uh, I do have a kind of pretty resilient. Uh, maybe Ray of sunshine. (laughs) Some say crazy, yeah. But no, uh, globally, I think one one argument you've heard me make a lot, and I I do, you know, firmly believe, is that a few of the precursors to kind of prior surges in innovation and and productivity growth are present and correct. They've been present and correct for some time, some of them, but uh, it does seem to be coalescing a little bit more with the potential for several really important breakthroughs and cross asset valuations, or to put another way, you know, the price of the ticket to act. Access all of that future, you know, innovation as we always talk about. It's pretty much less expensive than it was, or more inexpensive, however you want to frame it. Uh, more, uh, more inexpensive than it was uh, a year ago. Markets development so far this year, you know, they're certainly jarring, particularly if you've been concentrated in certain parts of the capital markets universe. You know, however. These are volatile markets, not necessarily rational ones. As I see it, others may disagree. The last six months have, um, like I say, sensibly seen investors you know, reassess the range of potential futures ahead. I think that's healthy in a way. Um, there are simply more where inflation is more of a thing. Now, as we've seen so far this year, and I alluded to in you know, the first answer, was that, you know, that means something for all sorts of assets. You've seen many cryptocurrencies, puking on the resulting kind of higher real interest rates as expected, uh, getting sort of priced in again. Uh, Growth stocks have repriced, bond yields, interest rates have surged. Uh, In a sense, you know, that's all reasonably logical in the context of the data we've seen so far and the the, the policy response that we're seeing so far. So I don't, I don't get the sense, I don't know about, you know, you guys, but I don't get the sense of kind of irrational sort of jumpy markets. This is just a repricing in a sense of um, what you're looking at in the future and the sort of, you know, the, the range of potential paths that lie ahead. And that's merited by what we've seen in the last couple of years and the stickiness and continuing positive surprises you're seeing in inflation data. And that, that in itself is amazing. You know, if you think how long inflation has been surprising forecasters, you know, you're just chasing this uh, 
it, you know, this ever elusive target up the hill that, that that's been going on for some time. So that that is quite something that inflation data is still able to surprise, even after uh, we've all been worrying about it so much already this year. Yeah. So so clearly some risks and complexities. Mm. But as you said, they're reassuring to hear there are some you know sort of positive signs longer term as well. But look, it's going to come as no surprise to hear inflation and rates continue to be top of investors Mines headlines such as the Fed raising rates in one go by three quarters of a percent for the first time since 1994, actually, wasn't it? Yeah, as yeah. Sarah said earlier, that, that clearly captures significant attention and might concern investors. What was interesting is that the S&P 500 in the US actually moved higher uh, last night, didn't it, off that news, even if it did open or might open lower today. And I suppose many will understand that's because the market is taking perhaps some comfort from the Fed seriously trying to get inflation under control. But quantitative tightening, otherwise known as QT for short, that to me feels like it's gone a little bit under the radar. Because whilst there was an article, I think it was in the Financial Times yesterday, titled something like Fed begins quantitative tightening on an unprecedented scale, I've not actually seen as much sort of chitter chatter about that, for, for want of a better word. Now, for those not aware, this is essentially the Federal Reserve in the US reducing the money supply in the economy basically by letting existing bonds it owns mature, but then not reinvesting proceeds back into new issues. Now, many will argue, Will, that the opposite of this, so so-called quantitative easing or, or QE back in 2020, was a huge help in the market rebound of a load of liquidity being pumped into the market, right? So have we seen much reaction from investors so far here? Is it something to be worried about or just maybe sensible policy to, to help combat high inflation? This is an argument. I'm going to actually correct something you said, because actually you were right a little bit that stocks did bounce. Uh, but actually, it looks at looking at the futures on my screen right now that they're going to puke again. And that's because bond yields are flying higher again. So you're still seeing this adjustment in the market as I'm looking at my screen, yeah. in honesty. And, that, and that's really, like I say, you know, it, this is about now, just in that short term piece, you know, this is all sort of blended into what you're talking about with regards to quant quantitative tightening and sort of arguments around that. And this is trying to explain how we think about it and how this is why we're one of the reasons why we're not so worried about it in terms of a really disorganized market and big recession. But the central bankers are having, and, and Chair Powell um, in the US, he, this is, he, he mentioned this last night, this is about not relinquishing any of that hard-won credibility on inflation. You know, the reason why we haven't had inflation to worry about is really, you know, down to, a lot of people argue, this legendary uh, central banker, Paul Volcker, who, you know, raised interest rates and re-established re expectations or re-established inflation certainty with regards to the central bank. And that's a really important thing. So we are seeing this, you know, this short-term battle with the investors um, about, you know, is it gonna, how big is the recession? How 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 much are they going to have to slow the economy, US and globally? We're seeing the same from the Bank of England in order to sort of, you know, get inflation back under control again. Um, and and that probably means at some point you're going to have to slow the economy below its trend uh, in order to cool it further but onto the qe versus qt bit i've always thought personally this is a slightly different difficult answer i guess but i've always been felt this has been a bit of a misunderstood um, and miscommunicated lazily communicated i should say concept qe was always portrayed as a sort of central bank liquidity geezer i mean a sort of high pressure spout not 
Ray Winston, um, obviously. <laughs> but this, you know, this geezer was uh, was was plotted next to. Uh, I think there was a famous chart. You probably saw it where you had the the S and P, the U.S. stock market, plotted next to uh, accumulated QE announcements and amounts announced, so on. And everyone was like, "Wow, it's a perfect fit." But actually, I, I always thought that was a very misleading chart. I mean, I, you know, it goes up there with spurious correlations. I think Luke Pierce found one, which is there's a high correlation between bedsheet stranglings and per capita cheese consumption, I believe. Um, so, you know, you can find some pretty spurious out there. It, the S&P with QE is not quite that spurious, but it, it, to me, it misunderstands. Uh, the way that this that QE works and, and the relationship between the two is likely subtler, more indirect and probably therefore reassuring for us going forward. QE was not liquidity in the word that people sort of talked about sloshing around. The Federal Reserve was not money printing, neither did others. QE is likely, you know, best caricatured, I think, as providing, you know, handrails for the economy. Uh, at moments of extreme stress, you know, you think back to the great financial crisis and the programs surely helped, you know, further loosen monetary conditions, the sum of various influences, you know, from interest rates to currencies. This certainly would have helped stocks over the course of the last cycle. However, the valuation effect was not dominant over that period. If you think about it in terms of you sum up all the returns and what you would attribute to valuation expansion versus earnings growth, dividend growth. That you you know yeah that's how you sort of uh, you know how you would chop it up. The overwhelming majority was um, was was coming from dividend growth, not valuation expansion. So, like I say, it was growth that was the most uh, powerful inference or earnings growth that had much less to do with QE in a way. So QT quantitative tightening it reversed some of that help that reassurance that larger central banks you know balance sheets provided. However, I don't personally I don't think it's going to be definitive. Yeah, and it likely reflects the need to, you know, rapidly get to a slightly tighter monetary environment. We've seen that in financial conditions. And that, in a sense, is why it's quite difficult in the short term for stocks, is because central bankers are going to continue to have to maintain um, the work they've done to get, you know, financial conditions tighter. You know, that means lower stock markets, higher bond yields, you know, whatever else, you know, all the other pieces that go into it. And that means that, you know, why we're expecting still a quite difficult summer. Thanks, Will. I feel like you could talk about that all day, but I do want to I'm move sorry. on, actually. Did it, sound like, did it feel like all day? It must have done. Well, sorry. no, I could listen for a lot longer, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> the other thing Miles and I were discussing earlier that I was hoping to get some views on as well is is that earnings results that we're seeing at the moment. And Miles, I was wondering, what, what are your clients asking about that? Yeah, so look, it, it comes back to what captures the headlines, I guess, really, doesn't it? So the, the point some clients might make around why maybe now isn't a, a good time to invest is they'll point to the fact that we've seen some companies guiding forward earnings expectations lower. I guess one that's been very prevalent in the news but shouldn't be taken as investment advice, of course, is Target in the US because we've seen some big share price movements there on on disappointment. So just interested, Will, to get your, your thoughts on, I guess, that sort of backdrop, acknowledging it's a little bit more specific. No, no, that's right. I mean, so, so yes, and actually it's topical because, you know, having a look at some of the latest credit card transaction data in the US, uh, you know, remember the US consumer is kind of customer number one for global PLC, you know, among other recent variables, you know, so you have quite a weak US retail sales uh, recently, there are some signs of moderating growth in consumption. Um, and again, in a way that's kind of welcome, you know, at this precise moment in time, it, it 
sounds perverse, but we need the economy to slow to kind of reconnect aggregate demand with aggregate supply and bring price pressures back down, return to equilibrium. And actually, like, you know, the point is, as I just said, this is, you know, we may need um, aggregate demand to undershoot to cool inflation. And you worry about, therefore, you know, that recession that's coming. And that's, you know, again, one of the sort of, you know, influences in markets. But I think, I think to answer your question more specifically, you will find that market prices tend, not always, to lead the earnings forecasts. So part of the sharp move seen in recent months um, in stocks um, is about sort of anticipating a slowdown in earnings growth. That's why there's usually a discrepancy between what, you know, when people look at valuation implied recession probabilities and market implied recession probabilities, because you do find the earnings forecasting community can be slow on the uh, slow on the cycle so I, I wouldn't read too much into earnings season like i said we don't tend to pay too much attention to it occasionally there are some interesting trends that you can identify but quite a lot of it from a long-term investor's perspective is it's really not really worth paying attention to like you always say miles keep your eye on the, the long term focus on that medium to long-term potential for pro, uh, you know productivity Absolutely. It's funny. I remember when I joined this industry many years ago, there was always this term that sometimes in the short term, bad news can be good news. Always confused the life out of me. But I, <laughs> I think you explained it quite uh, quite nicely there. But look, I'm going to come on to my next point. It's sort of tied into that, really, because many of those firms are also making the point that lower guidance is in part, of course, due to higher costs with commodity prices naturally playing, no doubt, a pretty big role in that. Now, interestingly, from a client or investor perspective, it's been a bit of a mixed bag here. So some have been talking about whether they might want to actually increase their allocation to commodities. Some, of course, are also arguing the reverse and saying, are you and the team thinking about taking some profit and reducing exposure in some of our portfolios and funds after, let's face it, a fantastic call from uh, from you guys to materially increase our allocation a little over a year ago, as you as you said. So is that something you guys have been debating? Because I know if Rob or Meyer were here from our behavioural finance team, they'd probably round about now be reminding us of action bias, where we sometimes feel the need to do just something, right, to, to make ourselves feel in control. Now, it's natural to rely more on recent information and, and extrapolate these trends continuing uh, in, in the future. We might overweight the worst or best case scenario as a result of that. So, so maybe some of that mixed client reaction in some respects, is actually an example of that exact point. Yeah, no, I think that's I, I think that's right. It's very difficult, isn't it? When you're watching your screens all day and you're seeing sort of some of the, the violence of some of the moves in markets and you're sort of, you know, your instinct is that there must be something in that, there must be something that I can exploit or maybe I should do something. But yeah, uh, Rob, is it's good to have Rob and Maya close to be able to keep us, keep us out of action <laughs> completely. But I mean, I think, yes, there were several questions in your question. With regards to diversified commodities, yes, they've been extremely helpful uh, to the multi-asset class uh you know funds and portfolios it is the best performing asset class by a mile so far this year and i think over the last 12 months it, 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 and the other thing is that very few of the competition go down that route now that does not necessarily a good about i'm not making you know negative comment on other people's asset allocations at all there's different styles of investing and i think one of those is that you know, the diversification that JP and the guys, you know, are really trying to embed in portfolios, that really is demonstrated by the fact that you get more asset classes, more exposures beyond stocks and bonds and the and the shapes of returns that you can get from those. And that should over time create 
more all-weather portfolios, and that's what we're trying to create. And others go for more concentrated angles, but um, I think that's important to just bear in mind. You know, second, you know, in terms of the outlook, it's not as a, not a homogenous block as you know. Um, there are common drivers, trends, but these tend to be more strategic, long-term in nature. And I think the appeal, and again, you know, JP and the guys are better at talk, better at talking about this than I am. But the appeal primarily hinges on the fact that the type of return commodities offer differ from what you can access in the rest of the market, um, and that provides some diversification. Um, and that is an example of what this year. And what you would say more short term tactically is that the setup and narrative within energy markets in particular suggests the potential for, for, for further upside, to be honest. Uh, the medium term supply picture remains extremely tight. Global inventories set well below pre-COVID trends. Then there's a need of investment to be attracted. And, you know, it's just not quite sure what uh, return capital is looking for in order to be significantly incentivized. It's not just about oil and gas, of course, but we still think there is a valuable job to, for commodities to do in the funds and portfolios. And the, the broader sort of implement, I think, thing to think about is that when do you trigger another SAA refresh? When do you rethink your overall asset allocation? Um, have markets moved enough for the assumptions embedded in the last refresh at the beginning of 2021 to, to warrant a really complete rejig? Uh, and there's certainly debate about that. There's always healthy debates about that. But, and there's no line in the sand here. But, you know, I think for the moment, you know, the fact that our previous assumptions were so robust and have proven so helpful for the moment, we remain sort of content with the strategic long term asset allocation and therefore the, um, the, the exposure to commodities. But these things are always a live debate, particularly in markets moving so strongly as they are right now. Yeah, and to, to your point there on robustness, Will, I'm probably going to make you blush a little, but no one will see. Um, I was talking to one of my colleagues, another wealth manager, who actually did a, a client review a couple of weeks ago, and the client actually couldn't believe how robust their specific portfolio performance had been and, and actually asked the wealth manager to go away and double check it, but it was right. Now, mm -hmm. it's great to see that short-term performance. Of course it is, but more pleasingly for me, that long-term track record, which is more important, also looks very favorable. But look, one, one final point from me, just to wrap up, I suppose, is look, let's say commodities hypothetically did fall over the next few months. I guess there's an argument to say that if you can stomach bumps over the next three, six months, whatever it, whatever it might be, that actually the starting point for some parts of the bond and stock complex, as you kind of alluded to earlier, actually, are, are looking a little bit more attractive from a valuation perspective than they did a year ago. Now, we know in the short term, you've always said this, that doesn't matter much for short term returns by any means. But over the long term, returns do tend to be a bit higher at uh, these sorts of levels, albeit no guarantee, of course, that that, that will happen again. No, definitely not. <laughs> no, sadly, no, I wish we could guarantee returns, but that is not the industry we are in. No, so I, I think, yeah, I was talking to Phil about this the other day, actually. I mean, somewhat simplistically, you'd say that expected returns have gone up, like you say. I don't mean you're being simplistic, but I'm saying, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm trying to say that, you know, if you, if you to illustrate your point, you know, bond yields have gone up quite significantly in the US. So, you know, nearly three and a half percent of the 10 year. That looks a lot juicier, all things being equal. And the same can be said for US stocks. It's not as simple as that, though, obviously. And actually, although it's worth taking note of, it's it's not a 
concept to get too caught up in, uh, too anchored to. The industry is simply not that good at reliably getting long-term returns right. Not for want of trying, of course. However, one point is that productivity, if it's the driving force behind long-term returns, it's not always that predictable. Sometimes the long-term trends can be, but uh, of course, the shorter-term spasms of productivity aren't. And in a way, over the longer term, I would rather keep expectations well anchored anyway. The aim with a medium risk portfolio, you know, medium risk fund is to sort of handily beat inflation over a multi-year period. We think we can do that because of industry leading process in our, you know, in our asset allocation, both tactical and strategic. And importantly, you know, our manager selection area. Uh, Now, uh, you know, allied to, you know, that's the, those are the processes and we can ally those, you know, internally, as you guys know, to, you know, high quality, experienced, grizzled even uh, individuals. Uh, and we believe that this is, you know, not a world that favours generalists, those that, you know, do a bit of everything. Heroes uh, that do, you know, asset allocation, all parts of the investment uh, value chain together, you know, putting, you know, what we do is putting together, you know, the efforts of discrete specialist teams, fund selection, asset allocation, portfolio construction, and so on, uh, using the scale of Barclays in a way we feel we can, you know, continue to offer an edge. Honestly, you talk to these guys, any of these guys for 10 minutes, uh, you'll realize that, you know, this is all best left for them. These guys are the experts. And that's the joy of being in my position. So I get to take at least a little bit of the credit that I to these guys. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks, Will, for answering those questions. And Miles, thank you for bringing some of those great questions for us to discuss today. We're almost out of time. But before we go, Will, have you got any final thoughts to leave us with? Get invested, stay invested, focus on the medium term and look out for the final test match. Okay, all good advice. Not sure about the last one, but all the rest was good advice. So thank you, Will. And thank you, Miles, for bringing the questions for us today. Thanks all listeners for joining us this week. Look forward to speaking to you all again soon. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.